Just a second, I'm going to ask Jacob to pray for our message. I want to um, just remind you guys where we are. We're in a series on basics of our lives with God, with each other, and with the world. It's called Foundations. We have spent several weeks reflecting on what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus, me and God, you and God. And we're transitioning now to what does it mean to be a disciple together, using this passage in 1 John as a primer that we're going to look at in a second. We looked at last week. So we're moving on from our lives individually where we emphasize Jesus' definition of discipleship. And Jesus' definition of discipleship is this call to be fully devoted to him as our first love. We looked at Luke 9 where Jesus says, if anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. This is this call to put Jesus first and above all other loves in our lives. And this call is impossible, as we've talked about, for us. It's impossible for us, but it is what the gospel of grace makes absolutely possible through the new birth. In the gospel, God not only forgives our lack of truly loving him, and putting other things and creation and everything above him, he also gives us a new heart. We are born again from above and our new heart is filled with his spirit. And so through this gift of new life, we are able to begin to love him as we're meant to, not perfectly, but truly. But here's what's amazing. Though loyalty to Jesus above everything and everyone else is his call and his command, the more deeply we give ourselves to him, the more deeply we're called into this command to love one another, to love one another. It's a clear principle throughout the New Testament that truly loving Jesus will find its expression in truly loving one another. You cannot love Jesus without loving one another. You cannot pursue Jesus without pursuing love for one another. They are inextricably, essentially, fundamentally connected. You can't have Jesus without his people. One of the most brilliant examples of this reality, this dynamic, that to love Jesus with all our hearts must lead to loving his people occurs at the end of John's gospel. And this isn't our focus passage. We'll get to that in a second. But I want to prime the pump a little bit with this beautiful picture. You have the apostle Peter, kind of the first of the apostles in the gospels. And if you remember, he boasts at the Last Supper that he loves Jesus more than any of these other disciples. And if all of them forsake him, he will not forsake him. Even to death, he will stay loyal to Jesus, even above his own life. It's a beautiful picture of a fully hearted, fully committed disciple. And then a few hours later, you know the story if you're familiar with Bible stories. He's humbled by his cowardice when he denies even knowing Jesus because he comes face to face with the fear of his life and his own inability to really be and do for Jesus what he longs to be and do. The Bible says he weeps bitterly. He's full of bitterness at his failure. And then after the resurrection, 
Jesus comes to Peter after this epic failure in his life and he comes back and he doesn't just reinstate him and say, I forgive you. It's a very interesting moment. Jesus comes to Peter, takes him aside alone on the beach and he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you really love me? But watch what Jesus does with that dynamic and with that question. Do you really love me? It's not what you might think. I would think, Peter, do you really love me? Then never forsake me again. Peter, do you really love me? Please don't ever leave me again. Peter, do you love me? Follow me above all other loves and loyalties. And all that is in Jesus' heart of what he desires for us, but that's not where he goes. Listen to where he goes. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Probably referring to the disciples because he had a few hours earlier boasted that he loved Jesus more than these. So Jesus brings him right back to that moment in the upper room. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, then tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And Jesus said to him, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. This is a beautiful moment where Jesus makes this connection between being restored to him, being forgiven by him, being reconciled to him, and caring for his people, his sheep, his lambs. Jesus isn't going to be around to desert or not desert anymore. He's ascending physically to heaven. And so now Jesus says, Peter, the progress, the, the evidence of your reconciliation, the picture of your return to me will be found not in refusing to abandon me when I'm captured by Pilate's guards, but it will be found in you loving my people, you loving the people I poured out my life for. You cannot love Jesus without loving his people. It is literally impossible. Because by God's grace, when he comes to live inside of you, the one who is filling you, making you new, is full of love for his people. So if he is in you, if he is growing in you, you will be driven to his people. If Jesus has come into your life and united his spirit with your spirit, his love for his people, it will come through to them from you. Not perfectly, 
but truly, and this is as we said last week in this book in 1 John, one of John's indicators of us truly being born again. But this is beautiful and encouraging. John doesn't leave it as a test. He doesn't say simply, if you're truly born again, born again you will love God's people. No, there's great mercy here. He understands and expects that this will be hard. And so he commands us to love one another. He will see in this passage, he'll put both things out there. This is what God's people will do. They'll love one another. So be who you are. So go do it. Because another part of you resists. Another part of you doesn't want to. Or another part of you is fill in the blanks, traumatized, embittered, angry, broken, hurt, whatever it might be. More difficult things besides just hurt, lazy, selfish. Those things still exist in us. And so John says, be who you are. Be who you are. Don't live out who you aren't. And this is an interesting dynamic in scripture that, that one of the ways God ensures that we will be who we really are is by commanding us to be who we really are. We're not automatically changed and perfected. No, he puts a new heart in us, but that new heart hears his commands and responds to his command. That new heart must be nourished and fed and changed by his word. Which, taking us back to our first messages, is why it's so important that we stay close to his word. That we stay close to his word. That we pray his word. We plead his word. Because his word works with his spirit inside us. His word works with his spirit inside us. To bring fresh understanding, fresh conviction, and fresh power through that word. So what I want to do today, and, and probably because of how late it is, by God's grace, we will not finish this today because I don't want to run you guys down with too much. We'll probably come through today and, and, and next week is to take this passage from 1 John 4 in God's word that we reflected on last week for communion about how God loves us and, and now reflect on how this kind of love from God is to shape our love for one another. For this passage ends with this application. It's right here for us. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How should we love one another? The way that God has loved us. That's what we're gonna explore. How has God loved us and how does that shape how we're to love one another? So I'm gonna read this passage in its fullness and I'm gonna ask Jacob to pray for us that God would work in our hearts. Jacob, you can do that here. This is 1 John 4, 7 through 11. These are the very words of God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Brother, will you pray for us? experienced your love in our lives before. Heavenly Father, I pray as Albert preaches this message that our hearts would be reminded of your love for us, God. Lord, would you make it clear as day the love that you have displayed for us on the cross so that we would live through you and help us to have power to love one another, God, through the Holy Spirit. Jesus, I pray that our hearts would be open to your word today, God. Transform us, sanctify us, and grow us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jacob. I have three principles or points, and we probably won't get through them all today, but um, we're going to start. So what we're doing with this text is we're trying to reverse engineer. The text concludes, if God so loved us, so also we ought to love one another. If this is how God loved us, then we should love one another this way. And this is what the Holy Spirit will give us power to do, as intimidating and challenging and failure exposing as it may feel. Because this is what he wants for us. And he'll give us power to do what he wants. But this is our, our goal, to consider from this short passage how God loves us so that we can love one another this way. <clears throat> the first one, I had a difficult time wording this, but I know what I mean and I'll try to explain it. And the first point is this, God has loved us because he is loving. God has loved us because he is loving. So we also ought to love one another. This is the way God loves us. He loves us because he's loving. So we ought to love one another this way. If you read in verse eight in the passage, we can go back to verse eight. <clears throat> and if we can go back to verse eight, just so it's in front of people, a few slides back, there it is. We hear this beautiful truth, God is love. God is love. And then in verse 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but God loved us. So we're going to take these two at a time, explore them. We're trying to find out how does God love us so that we can be informed about how we should love one another. So first, God is love. What can we draw out from this beautiful, universal, incredible truth? God is love. God is love. From all eternity, at the core of who God is, the very center, the fabric of his being. What is God made of? What is at the core of the character and heart of God is his love. The Christian conception of God is unique and glorious beyond our imagination. 
And I know of no other conception of God that not only proclaims God is love, but necessitates it in how the Christian faith describes and reveals God. God is love. And this has to mean that God has been loving. God has been loving in his character as long as God has been existing. Because if he is love, that's what he's been doing. And so this is why we see this picture in our faith of God being one God in relationship with three persons. The Christian conception of God says that God is three persons in one God and that three, these three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are one being, have been existing outside of time and space eternally in a relationship of love forever and ever and ever and ever. God is love. This necessitates God must be relationship. And I won't go into layers and layers and layers of apologetic that's beautiful to reflect on about how God is love and the Trinity is, 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 they correlate necessarily. But God has been love for all eternity and he's been exercising love for all eternity within himself, Father, Son, Spirit. And then because of God's nature, when he created mankind, in keeping with his nature, he loved us automatically. He could do nothing else for his image bearers. His love started in him because it's who he is. And this is where I'm trying to get to this point, that God loves us because he's loving. God's love for us was never a response to what he could simply get out of us. God didn't love us because of what he could get out of us. It wasn't a transactional You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back kind of love. We take this for granted. We hear this word agape love and we think, of course, that's what love means. But brothers and sisters, this has not been the understanding of the universe from all time. This is work that the unique Christian conception of God has done in civilization. If you look in the Bible, agape love can mean very different things. We think it automatically means self-sacrificial love. And it certainly does, but we understand that because of what Christ and God and his word tell us love is. Agape love, that that Greek word group and the the similar word groups in Hebrew, they don't necessarily mean self-sacrificial love. It's when Jesus explains, when he says God is love, like in passages like this, and he says, and here's what I mean, here's what I mean, that we begin to really understand and see clearly that God being loving it means that he is giving and, and other-centered and self-sacrificial. That he isn't simply loving us to get what he can get out of us. And we take it for granted that we understand that, but, but this is what God wants us to really see in telling us that he is love. He doesn't love us simply for what he can get out of us. In fact, the closer we get to to this idea in verse 10, this is love, unpacking, explaining what love is, not that we love God, but that he loved us. It, it, It begins to show the reality that not only did God not love us because of what he could get out of us, he loves us despite our unloveliness. He loves us despite our unloveliness. 
despite what we deserve in our sin, despite our unworthiness in ourselves, God loves us anyway and continues to love us anyway. And so what I, what I wanna get out of this first application is, is that God doesn't love us because of what he can get out of us. God doesn't love us because we're so lovable. God loves us because he's loving. He loves us because he's loving. And this is a crucial aspect of how he wants us to love one another, not because of what we can get from each other, which can be fine, by the way. We'll talk about that in a second. But he wants us to love because his spirit lives inside us. And that's who he is. And because of that, we're becoming more and more loving people who love not from what they can get out from other people, get from other people, but because this is what love really is. To love simply because you love. So how might we think about this? Let's think of one way of, of how love for others might operate in us. Not necessarily sinful, but, but not what I'm talking about, okay? As a way to contrast this to try to identify what I'm talking about. We often love people because we find in them something that we deem worthy of our admiration, of our interest, of our attention, of our affection, and that, that engenders more attention and affection and love. We, we find in someone their sense of humor. It's just beautiful to us. And we just love laughing with them. And it draws our affection, our love for them. That's good. There's nothing wrong with that. And we begin to pursue a relationship with them and pour into them because we just get it. We have this rapport and it just brings us joy to laugh with them. And the way they think about life, you know, it's a soulmate thing. It's great. That's a gift from God. We might love somebody for their wonderful mind, the way they think. And we long to spend time with them and talk with them and rest in their presence and just enjoy being with them. What a gift. Sometimes that's the way I feel about Rob. <clears throat> Not all the time, but other times totally. <laughs> I do, I love Rob's brain and his humor. I just love being with him, I've told him that. Made him very uncomfortable. <clears throat> but listen, these are good things. Soulmates are gifts. They're really good things. Talking with my daughter on a walk. Why do you like these friends? I want to hear about why you like, oh, their humor, their peace. I don't feel judged. Just beautiful stuff coming out of my, as my daughter thinks about the friends in her life. Sorry, Marie, to put the spotlight on you. But, but that, that's just good. These are good things. And may God give us all deep friendships with people who stimulate us and create affections in us because of who they are. What a gift, what a joy. I mean, it's, it's how we survive sometimes through life. But this isn't the kind of love John has in mind. This isn't the kind of love John has in mind. And it's a beautiful gift. It's not what he's talking about. And we can know this intuitively because the world understands that kind of love. The humor, the soulmate, everybody knows this. It's not a uniquely Christian idea and conception. It's a gift of God's common grace to everyone on planet earth, typically, who can survive long enough and be in community with people. So this is a not uniquely Christian phenomenon and it's not what God is talking about here. It's not what John is talking about. Rather, 
John means for us to exercise the kind of love that isn't fueled by what's in the person that we're loving. But it's fueled by his free, self-originating love, which loves because love is good, which loves despite the unloveliness of the people it's loving which loves because God is love. And his reason for loving us originates first in himself, not in our attractiveness or sense of humor or what he can get out of us. And that's the most beautiful love there is in the world. And that is how he loves us. As verse 11 says, God so loved us. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So practically speaking, what might this look like? What, and by the way, what does it often look like? Because I'm speaking to a room with people in it who have Jesus in them, who already demonstrate this kind of love. But we wanna grow, we wanna push into it more. So what might we see it in our community, in, in a church like ours or other churches? And I would, I would submit that concretizing this idea that of, of loving people for the sake of loving because we're trying to emulate who God is, the God who loves simply because he's loving, simply because he's loved, that it will look like this. The spiritually mature will love the spiritually immature. The spiritually mature will not just put up with and pray for strength too endure, but will love, will have their affections stoked towards the spiritually immature. It will look like the person who has it together, who, and some of us do have it together better than others, will love the person who is a mess. And you'll find people who are messes and people who are immature finding not judgment, but finding love, finding kindness. It, it will look like the beautiful soul will love the uglier soul. It will look like the interesting mind will love the simple-minded. And none of us are only interesting and only simpler, but there is a spectrum. There's always someone more interesting than you <laughs> and me. And there's always someone less interesting. It will look like, as we see in scripture, the richer loving the poorer. The one who has more than they need sharing with the person who has not what they need. It will look like the younger loving the older and not just conglomerating in their own society. It will look like the older reaching out to the younger not just staying where they're comfortable. It will look like more popular people loving socially awkward people. It will look like the calm loving the anxious. It will look like faith-filled people being merciful and loving towards people with chronic doubt. It will look like mentally healthy, encouraged people being able to love the depressed through long, long, long seasons of depression. It will look like the more gifted people loving and making room for the less gifted people. 
All those things speak to love, not because of what I can get out of, but because love is loving. True love loves. And conversely, and we're all on one side or the other of these lists, you know, <laughs> none of us is all great and all poor. We're all a mix. But, but let's look at the other side of the list, the, what we might call the disadvantaged category, the depressed or the less gifted or the not as beautiful a soul or the, the, the less mature. Conversely, their call is to rather, our call when we are in those spots, because we are all on the, on the weaker end sometimes of relationships. We're all, we all know what it's like, right? To be with someone who just blows us away. And we both love being with them and think it's so great to be with them. But there's another part of it that's kind of like trying to measure up and trying to like be who they are or, or other stuff starts to creep in. You know, why can't I be like that? Why can't I get the spotlight like, like they get? Why don't I have the gifts or the money or the skills or the whatever you name it? And the call for us when we're on the weaker side of that dynamic is rather than become jealous or resentful and feed on our inadequacies and feed on our weaknesses and become embittered by that and hide and shrivel back? No, it's, it's the call for from those weaker positions to seek God's grace, to rejoice in the blessing of the other because I, I, am, I am seeking to find my hope in the fact that God even though I'm weak or ugly or not as spiritually mature as I wish someone else were, I'm finding my hope in the fact that God is my portion. He is my very great reward. And I don't have to beat them or get what they have or be who they are or because God is enough. And it'd be great if I had a better sense of humor. <laughs> it'd be great if I wasn't struggling with this mental health issue but I will seek and keep coming back to the fact that God is enough and I can rejoice in their season of blessing, even in my season of trial. So that's my first point that God loves us because he's loving. So we also ought to love one another this way. Next point, and will be my last for today. God loves us with a pursuing love. So we also ought to love one another with a pursuing love. God loves us with a pursuing love. So we also ought to love one another. Remember, we're asking that question. How does God love us? Because John says, so we also this way as God loves us, love each other. So this is my next point. God loves us with a pursuing love. Verse 10, he loved us. He loved us and sent. Did you hear that? He loved us and sent. Love didn't just stay in here. It did something. It pursued. It reached out. John tells us God pursued us. Oh, we weren't worthy of being pursued in ourselves. We had rejected him. He pursued us anyway. He didn't wait to get loved by us. Even the love that he deserved, he didn't wait for it. He came after us. It's common, and listen, again, it's good. It's a gift to be able to love somebody in response to their love for you. It is. It's great to be treated well by someone and find yourself loving them 
in response because they've been so kind to you. You just want to be kind to them. That's how it should work. It's beautiful. So you begin to pursue them because they've pursued you. You begin to love them because they've loved you. In fact, this is how God made us love him. He loved us first. He pursued us first. He changed us so that now we want him. Not perfectly, but truly. Now we long for him. Not as much as we should, but we do. Because we're born from above. And he started that. He initiated that. He pursued that. So that's good. That's good. And it's good when it happens here on earth between us. But now God calls us not only to be receivers of love who reciprocate, not only to be responders to love who respond to the love we're given from each other. No, he calls us to pursue. To pursue. To be like him and initiate like him because that's how he loved us. And verse 11 says, if God so loved us, well then this is how we ought to love one another. And so here is a convicting question for myself and maybe some of you. Is it our posture to wait to be loved before we seek to love. It so often is my posture. To the poverty of my relationships, my marriage, my family. I get scared, I get tempted, I get angry, I get impatient, I get inward, bent, and I need to be loved first. I need to be hugged. I need to be called. I need to be texted because I'm scared. I'm afraid of condemnation and I'm, now I feel hurt and I just need somebody to use the low jack to pull me out of the car accident of my heart so I can love again. And praise God that that happens. But God wants more and he has more for me to enjoy him and feast on who he is inside me than just to simply wait to be loved before I seek to love. Now, let me qualify this. Some of us go through seasons and I've seen it and I've experienced it. Some of us go through years. I have gone through years where we are so hampered, so depleted, so badly broken that for a long time, we really must receive and can give little. And that very well may be exactly where God has you right now. And for a long season, he will keep you there perhaps. <laughs> Even to your own battle with your pride about it. I've counseled and I've been counseled in state where the person is struggling so long, so often that it's just <laughs> so humbling. Why am I always the one asking pastors for advice? And they're never asking me for advice. Some of you guys are like, duh. Rob. So <laughs> I, I, I'm joking kind of, but, but my point is like we get, we get in those places of weakness and God is, he's not like, I'm so glad you're weak, but I think he's doing some work sometimes in those places in our pride and our pride. 
to just say, hey, you're always needy. And that person who's giving you advice, they're super needy too. They may not know it as much because they're with you and you look way more needy than they do, but we're all glorified beggars and sons and daughters of the king, by the way. But we're always needy. Rob, I'm sorry for picking on you. <laughs> so that may be where he has you and, and he, as he mends you, his goal is not for you to eternally be in that place because that's not his image only. He will increase your capacity to love others. He will restore you so that you are able to not just be receiver, but a giver. So if you're going through depression or healing from trauma or abuse or recovering from addiction, you may very well need a lot more time receiving love for others than you can give. And that is okay. As long as we hope and seek and yearn to be givers too, because that's who God is and God lives in us. And that's beautiful. Another qualifier. There are very good reasons and all these things I'm saying to be wise and careful in relationships and to take appropriate time to get to know others and allowing them to get to know us. So I'm, I'm not talking about throwing away wisdom and discernment about people in relationships. But let's not misuse or abuse wisdom and discernment and carefulness to insulate our hearts from the call of our Lord to be a servant, to be a pursuer. It doesn't mean, and you can't pursue everyone. No one can do that. But for many, if not most of us, there are a few, a couple that we can be going after and pursuing because we follow a Lord who put his disciples in front of him and didn't wait to get served, but he got down on his hands and knees and he, he went to them and took their feet in his hands and washed them and then said, as I have done for you, so do for one another. We are the children of the one who says to us, it is more blessed to give than to receive and he says, as you lay your life down, depending on me, depending on me, depending on me, please hear me say that, depending on me, you will find life. So when you think of, let's take our church, when you think of our church, our community, do you conceive of meeting Jesus? Do you believe that you will meet Jesus in serving others and pursuing others. Because this is not gonna work if we're doing it to earn a badge and we're doing it trusting in our own ability and trusting in our own strength or we're doing it because we're a bad boy or we're a bad girl if we don't. We have to believe there's joy in this. We have to believe this is beautiful we have to want this. I said to one of my kids the other day, I can give you rules and I'll give you some rules, but listen, here's the truth. Sooner or later, you're just gonna do what you want. That's the truth. You're gonna do what you want. I'm gonna do what I want. So God has to make this beautiful to you. 
And he makes it beautiful to you by giving you the idea that there is life in laying down my life. There's life for me. There's joy for me in serving in this church and in serving this church's people. He's going to meet me because he loves this church. And he does. Little as we are, he loves us and he's been faithful to us. We see signs of that and prophecies and prayers and coincidences that aren't coincidences week after week. And we, we see signs because he's faithful to his wife. He's faithful to his people. When you think of coming to a, a meeting for coffee with someone or a community or a care group or a DR, do you anticipate meeting Jesus and trying to serve and care for the person? Because if you do, it will, it will amp up. It will give you energy to do that, to come to a DR or a care group or community group or, or any informal meeting saying, oh man, I, I want to serve and love this person. I'm not just here to be served. I hope I get served. I hope I get cared for and loved, but I'm not just here for that. I'm here to serve. I'm here to pursue. I'm here to pursue. Not just what can I get out of this, but how can I be used by the Lord and meet him? So if that sounds like either drudgery or impossible for you, you're not seeing what Jesus has made you and you're not seeing what he's inviting you to. And I wouldn't even recommend that you go pursue if it just is drudgery to you right now and it seems impossible for you because it probably will be drudgery and impossible because you're not putting your faith in the Lord and believing his promises that he will meet you in serving and caring. But indeed, this is how he wants to meet us. He wants to meet us and fill us. He wants to bless us in our giving and our pursuing. I think one of the most extraordinary and beautiful experiences in my life <clears throat> was in about 2002, 2004. I was at this church, Cherrydale Baptist Church in Arlington. And I had a little, we had a little small group of guys. We met each week for prayer, accountability, a young adult thing. And at some point, this counselor, Lucy, something, came to us somehow. She was an older lady who was a therapist in a mental hospital for people who are mentally ill. And she said, I got this kid. He took too many drugs and somehow it triggered schizophrenia. And now he's a schizophrenic inpatient in this mental institution. But he also is really interested in God, asking questions about God. And so the group of us, I don't know that any of us would have done it alone, but the group of us, spoiler alert, we're going to come to there later. But we, we got together and we began to go to the mental hospital and, and have our small group in his dorm with him. And yeah, there was some weird stuff. But man, it just felt like, whew, it felt like 
we are in the sweet spot. It felt like this is what we are made for. Loving each other, being brothers together, and drawing in, pursuing, caring for this broken, crushed kid. It was beautiful. And we all just teamed up and loved on this kid. And I kid you not, I mean, this isn't always what God does. This kid got out of that hospital. He got on his meds, got it stabilized. And he got an apartment. And he found a way to get to Eritrea, Northern Africa, and get his mom from that country into the United States while he had schizophrenia. And we prayed for his healing. We asked for miracles. God didn't grant that, but he granted him enough that the kid could get his own apartment, fly across the world, grab his mom in a hard place, bring her to America, get a job at a church as a maintenance worker, and begin to go to care groups and other things and, and bless people. And it's just beautiful. Just a beautiful story of God saving and changing, but sending, being, being one who sent us to do that. And, and th that's where life is for us. That's where life is for us. It really is. There's an implicit promise in verse nine, right in the middle of this passage. God sent his only son. We go to verse nine, Ed. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And I know we blow by that, right? I love the God is love. That's amazing. I love the, we ought to love God. I get that. You know, four words. We might live through him. I mean, it, we, I blow past that. All my life I've blown past that in this passage. No, John is telling us Jesus came to give us not only forgiveness through his blood, but the ability to live, really live, really live through him. We live through him. He gives us his life so that we can live through him. He doesn't, he doesn't, not talking about pulse rates and heartbeats. He means true spiritual life, the kind of life that leads to joy in God, which finds God deeply satisfying as we lay our lives down and pursue others so that we want it. So it's beautiful to us. So I, I close with this. If, if you... If you, you won't be able to do this on your own, any of this stuff I'm talking about, you will not be able to live this, these kinds of loves from your own resources. And that is why this passage, this whole entire passage is predicated on being born of God. This whole passage is predicated based on the, based on the foundation of being born of God. This kind of life is experienced when we're born of God and being born of God, we actively depend on God, cry out to God, plead with God, rely on God through all these mechanisms of love. And he gives us the strength to do it, to keep going. Because also, spoiler alert for next week, it's painful to try to love this way. It's painful. And it leads to much suffering. And some of that suffering, God means for us to experience. To mature us and grow us. I'm not talking about staying in abusive situations, dangerous places that you can extricate yourself. I'm talking about 
God has ordained that in trying to love other people, we will partner with his son and fellowship with his son in suffering. And that is how he will grow us. And we will still be able to say, it's worth it. It's beautiful. It's good. And we'll talk more about that next week. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for how beautiful you are and how good you are. And I pray that who you are would woo us and attract us and you would give us through the Holy Spirit just the, uh, the desires to love you this way, to follow you this way, to be like you this way because you'd help us to see how beautiful it is and how good it is. Oh God, Forgive us and cleanse us for filling up our lives with so much TV and phone and whatever it is that we don't make time to pursue and to love. And cleanse us where that's appropriate in this room, in my own life. And, and keep before our gaze the beauty of who you are, the one who loves because he's loving. And the joy of being able to love, Lord, not for what we can get out of people, but because you're in us and you just love. That's who you are. Give us the joy of, of experiencing what it means to pursue wisely, yes, but truly to pursue and initiate love and not simply be those who wait to be loved and wait to respond to love, but go out. Thank you, God, for, for the health and the fruit that is already in our church in these regards. Please preserve it. 